Hello, dear friends, and welcome once again to the cosy fireside of the Great Library of Dreams. Come along in. As ever, there's a seat waiting just for you. Well then, dear friends, tonight we are once again cracking open the casebook Eminent Ghost Hunter and Occult Detective Mr. Flaxman Lowe. We are actually now closing in on the last couple of cases from Mr. Lowe, with tonight's offering being the third from last investigation he undertook. The pen-pen-ultimate tale, if you will. It's called The Story of Connor Old House, and it first saw print in the collected edition of the Flaxman Lowe Tales, Ghosts being the experience of Flaxman Lowe, first published way, way back in 1899. Now, unfortunately, once again for this particular tale, its age means I must issue a little warning. While well, there is a term used in this particular tale as an adjective for ethnicity, which, while completely respectable at the time the story was written, has now been superseded not once but several times throughout the 20th century and into the 21st. As ever, my rule of thumb for dealing with this kind of material is to weigh up whether the original intention and words used were meant to be offensive or a slur, and in this case, it is one of those instances where certain terminology now has been rendered obsolete. However, as I said, I don't think there's any particular malice intended in this particular tale. However, forewarned is indeed forearmed, and to my mind at least, a better option than tinkering with the text or censoring it. Anyhow, dear friends, I hope the dated language doesn't impair your enjoyment of this tale too much which features a rather intriguing mystery, one that poses a great many questions and proves to be exceedingly taxing, even for the agile mind of Mr. Flaxman Lowe. So then, dear friends, if you'd like to fill your glasses and settle back in your armchairs, let's open the casebook once again. The Story of Connor Old House by E. Heron and H. Heron I hold, Mr. Flaxman Lowe, the eminent psychologist, was saying, that there are no other laws in what we term the realm of the supernatural but those which are the projections or extensions of natural laws. Very likely that's so, returned Neripsy, with suspicious humility. But all the same, Connor Old House presents problems that won't work in with any natural laws I'm acquainted with. I almost hesitate to give voice to them. They sound so impossible and 
and absurd. Let's judge of them, said Lowe. It said, said Neripsy, standing up with his back to the fire, it is said that a shining man haunts the place. Also a light is frequently seen in the library. I've seen it myself of a night from here. Yet the dust there, which happens to lie very thick over the floor and the furniture, has afterwards shown no sign of disturbance. Have you satisfactory evidence of the presence of the Shining Man? I think so, replied Neripsy shortly. I saw him myself the night before I wrote, asking you to come up to see me. I went into the house after dusk, and was on the stairs when I saw him. The tall figure of a man, absolutely white and shining. His back was towards me, but the sullen raised shoulders and the sidelong head expressed a degree of sinister animosity that exceeded anything I have ever met with. So I left him in possession, for it's a fact that anyone who has tried to leave his card at Connor Old House has left his wits with it. It certainly sounds rather absurd, said Mr. Lowe, but I suppose we have not heard all about it yet. No, there is a tragedy connected with the house, but it's quite a commonplace sort of story and in no way accounts for the Shining Man. Neripsy was a young man of means who spent most of his time abroad, but the above conversation took place at the spot to which he always referred to as home, a shooting lodge connected with his big grouse moor on the west coast of Scotland. The lodge was a small new house built in a damp valley, with a trout stream running just beyond the garden hedge. From the high ground above, where the moor stretched out towards the Solway Firth, it was possible on a fine day to see the dark cone of Asa Crag rising above the shimmering ripples. But Mr Lowe happened to arrive in a spell of bad weather, when nothing was visible about the lodge but a few roods of sodden lowland and a curve of the yellow tumbling little river and beyond a murky outline of shouldering hills, blurred by the ever-falling rain. It may have been eleven o'clock on a depressing muggy night when Neripsy began to talk about Connor Old House as he sat with his guests over a crackling, flaming fire of pinewood. Connor Old House stands on the spur of the ridge opposite, one of the finest sights possible, and it belongs to me. Yet I'm obliged to live in this damp little bog hole, for the man who would pass a night in Connor is not to be met in this county. Sullivan, the third man present, replied he was. Perhaps, with a glance at Lowe, there were two. Which stung Neripsy, who turned his words into a deliberate challenge. Is it a bet? asked Sullivan, rising. He was a tallish man, dark and clean-shaven, whose features were well known to the public in connection with the emerald green jersey of the rugby international football team of Ireland. Good night. If it is, it's a bet I'm going to win. In the morning, Neripsy, I'll trouble you for the difference. The affair is much more in Lowe's line than in yours, said Neripsy. But you're not really going. You may take it I am, though. Don't be a fool, Jack. Lowe, tell him not to go. Tell him there are things no man ought to meddle with. He broke off. There are things no man can meddle with, replied Sullivan, obstinately fixing his cap on his head. 
and my backing out of this bet would stand in as one of them. Nerypsy was strangely urgent. Lowe, speak to him, you know. Flaxman Lowe saw that the big Irishman's one vanity had got up on its hind legs, and he also saw that Nerypsy was very much in earnest. Sullivan's big enough to take care of himself, he said laughing. At the same time, if he doesn't object, we might as well hear the story before he starts. Sullivan hesitated, then flung his cap into a corner. That's all, he said. It was a warm night for the time of year, and they could hear through the open window the splashing downpour of the rain. There is nothing so lonely as a drip of heavy rain, began Neripsy. I always associated with Connor Old House. The place has stood empty for ten years or more, and this is the story they tell about it. It was last inhabited by a Sir James Hamakian, who had been a merchant of sorts in Sierra Leone. When the Baronessi fell to him, he came to England and settled down in this place with a pretty daughter and a lot of servants, including a black man named Jake, whose life he was said to have saved in Africa. Everything went on well for nearly two years, when Sir James had occasion to go to Edinburgh for a few days. During his absence, his daughter was found dead in her bed, having taken an overdose of some sleeping draught. The shock proved too great for her father. He tried travelling, but on his return home, he fell into a settled melancholy and died some months later, a dumb imbecile at the asylum. Well, I shan't object to meeting the girl, as she's so pretty, remarked Sullivan with a laugh. But there's not much in the story. Of course, added Neripsy, countryside gossip has a good deal of colour to the plain facts of the case. It's said that terrible details connected with Miss Mackeon's death were suppressed at the inquest, and people recollected afterwards that for months the girl had worn an unhappy, frightened look. It seemed she disliked the Negro and had been heard to beg her father to send him away. But the old man would not listen to her. What became of the negro in the end? asked Flaxman Low. In the end, Sir James kicked him out after a violent scene, in the course of which he appears to accuse Jake of having some hand in causing the girl's death. Jake swore he'd be revenged on him, but as a matter of fact, he left the place almost immediately and has never been heard of since, which disposes of Jake. A short time after, the old man went mad. He was found lying on a couch in the library, a hopeless imbecile. Saying this, Nripsy went to the window and looked out into the rainy darkness. Connor Old House stands on the ridge opposite, and a part of the building, including the library window, where the light is sometimes seen, is visible through the trees from here. There's no light there tonight, though. Sullivan laughed his big full laugh. How about your shining man? I hope we may have the luck to meet. I suspect some canny Scots tramp knows where to get a snug roost rent free. That may be so, replied Neripsy, with a slow patience. I can only say that after seeing the light of a night, I have more than once gone up in the morning to have a look at the library, and never found the thick dust in the least disturbed. 
Have you noticed if the light appears at regular intervals? said Lowe. No, it's there on and off. I generally see it in rainy weather. What sort of people have gone crazy in Connor Old House? asked Sullivan. One was a tramp. He must have lived pleasantly in the kitchen for days. Then he took to the library, which didn't agree with him, apparently. He was found in a dying state, lying upon Sir James's couch, with horrible black patches on his face. He was too far gone to speak, so nothing was gleaned from him. He probably had a dirty face, and having caught cold in the rain, went into Connor Old House and died quietly there of pneumonia or something of the kind, just as you or I might have done, tucked up in our own little beds at home, commented Sullivan. The last man to try his luck with the ghosts, went on the Ripsy, without noticing the remark, was a young fellow called Bowie, a nephew of Sir James. He was a student at Edinburgh University, and he wanted to clear up the mystery. I was not at home, but my factor allowed him to pass a night in the house. As he did not appear next day, they went to look for him. He was found lying on the couch, and he has not spoken a rational word since. Sheer mere physical fright, acting upon an overwrought brain. Sullivan summed up the case scornfully, and now I'm off. The rain has stopped, and I'll get up to the house before midnight. You may expect me at dawn to tell you what I've seen. What do you intend to do when you get there? asked Flaxman Low. I'll pass the night on the ghostly couch, which I suppose I shall find in the library. Take my word for it, madness is in Sir James's family. Father and daughter and nephew all gave proof of it in different ways. The tramp, who was perhaps in there for a couple of days, died a natural death. It only needs a healthy man to run the gauntlet and set all this foolish talk at rest. Neripsy was plainly much disturbed, though he made no further objection. But when Sullivan was gone, he moved restlessly about the room, looking out the window from time to time. Suddenly, he spoke. There it is, the light I mentioned to you. Mr. Lowe went to the window. Away on the opposite ridge, a faint light glimmered out through the thick gloom. Then he glanced at his watch. Rather over an hour since you started, he remarked. Well now, Neripsy, if you'll be so good as to hand me human origins from the shelf behind you, I think we may settle down to wait for dawn. Sullivan's just the man to give a good account of himself, under most circumstances. Heaven send there be no black side to this business, said Neripsy. Course I was a fool to say what I did about the old house, but nobody except an ass like Jack would think I meant it. I wish the night was well over. That light is due to go out in two hours anyway. Even to Mr. Lowe, the night seemed unbearably long. But at the first streak of dawn, he tossed his book on the sofa, stretched himself and said, We may as well be moving. Let's go see what Sullivan is doing. The rain began to fall again and was coming down in close straight lines as the two men drove up the avenue to Connor Old House. As they ascended, the trees grew thicker on the banks of the cutting, which led them in curves to the terrace on which stood the house. Although it was a modern red-brick building, rather picturesque with its gables and sharply pitched overhanging roofs, it looked desolate and forbidding enough in the grey daybreak. 
To the left lay lawns and gardens. To the right, the cliff fell away steeply to where the burn roared in spate some three hundred feet below. They drove round to the empty stables and then hurried back to the house on foot by a path that debouched directly under the library window. Neripsy stopped under it and shouted, Hello, Jack, where are you? But no answer came, and they went on to the hall door. The gloom of the wet dawning and the heavy smell of stagnant air filled the big hall as they looked round at its dreary emptiness. The silence within the house itself was oppressive. Again Neripsy shouted, and the noise echoed harshly through the passages, jarring on the stillness. Then he led the way to the library at a run. As they came in sight of the doorway, a wave of some nauseating odour met them, and, at the same moment, they saw Sullivan lying just outside the threshold, his body twisted and rigid like a man in the extremity of pain, his contorted profile ivory pale against the dark oak flooring. As they stopped to raise him, Mr Lowe just had time to notice the big gloomy room beyond, with its heaped and trampled layers of accumulated dust. There was no time for more than a glance, for the indescribable fetid odour almost overpowered them as they hastened to carry Sullivan into the open air. We must get him home as soon as we can, said Mr Lowe, for we have a very sick man on our hands. This proved to be true, but in a few days, thanks to Mr Lowe's treatment and untiring care, the severe physical symptoms became less urgent, and in due time, Sullivan's mind cleared. The following account is taken from the written statement of his experience in Connor Old House. On reaching the house, he entered as noiselessly as possible and made for the library, finding his way by the help of a series of matches to Sir James's couch, upon which he lay down. He was conscious at once of an acrid taste in his mouth, which he accounted for by the clouds of dust he had raised in crossing the room. First, he began to think about the approaching football match with Scotland, for which he was already in training. He was still in his mood of derisive incredulity. The house seemed vastly empty and wrapped in an uneasy silence, a silence which made each of his comfortable movements an omen of significance. Presently, the sense of a presence in the room was borne in upon him. He sat up and spoke softly. He almost expected someone to answer him, and so strong did this feeling become that he called out, Who's there? No reply came, and he sat on amidst the oppressive silence. He says the slightest noise would have been a relief. It was the listening in silence that bred in him so intense a longing to grapple with some solid opponent. Fear. He who had denied the very existence of cause for fear found himself shivering with an untranslatable terror. This was fear. He realised it with an infinite recoil of anger. Presently he became aware that the darkness about him was clearing. A feeble light filtered through it from above. Looking up at the ceiling, he perceived 
directly above his head, an irregular patch of pale phosphorescent luminance which grew gradually brighter. How long he sat with his head thrown back, staring at the light, he does not know. It seemed years. Then he spoke to himself plainly. With an immense effort, he forced his eyes away from the light and got up upon his feet to drag his limbs around the room. The phosphorescence was of a greenish tint and as strong as moonlight, but the dust rose like a vapour at the slightest movement and somewhat obscured its power. He moved about, but not for long. A clogging weight, such as one feels in nightmare, pressed upon him, and his exhaustion was intensified by the overpowering physical disgust bred in him by the repulsive odour which passed across his face as he staggered back to the couch. For a few moments he would not look up. He says he had an impression that someone was watching him through the radiance as though through a window. The atmosphere about him was thickening and cloaking the walls with drowsy horror, while his senses revolted and choked at the growing odour. Then followed a state of semi-sleep, for he recollects no more until he found himself staring again at the luminous patch on the ceiling. By this time the brightness was beginning to dim. Dark smears showed through it here and there, which ran slowly together, till out of them grew and protruded a fat, black, evil face. A second later, Sullivan was aware that the horrible face was sinking down nearer and nearer to his own, while all about it the light changed to black, dripping fluid that formed great drops and fell. It seemed as if he could not save himself. He could not move. The fighting blood in him had died out. Then fear, mad fear and strong loathing, gave him the strength to act. He saw his own hand working savagely. It passed through and through the impending face. Yet he swears that he felt a slight impact, and he saw the fat glazed skin quiver. Then with a final struggle, he tore himself from the couch, and rushing to the door, he wrenched it open, and plunged forward into a red vacancy. Down, down. After that, he remembered no more. While Sullivan still lay ill and unable to give account of himself or what had happened at Connor Lowe House, Mr Flaxman Lowe expressed his intention of paying a visit to the asylum for the purpose of seeing young Bowie. But on arrival at the asylum, he found that Bowie had died during the previous night. A weary-eyed assistant doctor took Mr Lowe to see the body. Bowie had evidently been of a gaunt but powerful build. The features, though harsh, were noble, the face being somewhat disfigured by a rough raised discoloration, which extended from the centre of the forehead to behind the right ear. Mr Lowe asked a question. Yes, it is a very obscure case, observed the assistant, but it is the disease he died of. When he was brought here some months ago, he had a small dark spot on his forehead, but it spread rapidly and now there are similar large patches over the whole of his body. I take it to be of a cancerous character, likely to occur in a scrofulous subject after a shock and severe mental strain, such as Bowie chose to subject himself to by passing a night in Connor Old House. The first result of the shock was the imbecility. An increasing lethargic condition of the body supervened, and finally coma. 
While the doctor was speaking, Mr. Lowe bent over the dead man and closely examined the mark upon the face. This mark appears to be the result of a fungoid growth, perhaps akin to the Indian disease known as mycetoma, he said at length. It may be so, the case is very obscure, but the disease, whatever we may call it, appears to be in Bowie's family. For I believe his uncle, Sir James Mackeon, had precisely the same symptoms during his last illness. He also died in this institution, but that was before my time, replied the assistant. After a further examination of the body, Mr. Lowe took his leave and, during the following day or two, was busily engaged in a spare empty room placed at his disposal by Neripsy. A deal table and a chair were all he required, Mr Lowe explained, and to these he added a microscope, an apparatus for producing a moist heat, and a coat worn by Sullivan on the night of his adventure. At the end of the third day, as Sullivan was already on the road to recovery, Mr Lowe, accompanied by Neripsy, paid a second visit to Connor Old House, during which Lowe mentioned some of his conclusions about the strange events which had occurred there. It will be an easy task to compare Mr Flaxman Lowe's theory with the experience detailed by Sullivan and with the one or two subsequent discoveries that added something like confirmation to his conclusions. Mr Lowe and his host drove up as on the previous occasion and stabled the horse as before. The day was dry, but grey, and the time, the early afternoon. As they ascended the path leading to the house, Mr Lowe remarked, after gazing up for a few seconds at the library window, that room has the air of being occupied. Why, what makes you think so? asked Naripsy nervously. It's hard to say, but it produces that impression. Neripsy shook his head despondently. I've always noticed it myself, he returned. I wish Sullivan were all right again, and able to tell us what he saw in there. Whatever it was has nearly cost him his life. I don't suppose we shall ever know anything more definite about the matter. I fancy I can tell you, replied Lowe. But let us get into the library and see what it looks like before we enter the subject any further. By the way, I should advise you to tie your handkerchief over your mouth and nose before we go into the room. Neripsy, upon whom the events of the last few days had had a very strong effect, was in a state of scarcely controllable excitement. What do you mean, Lowe? You can't have any idea. Yes, I believe the dust in that house to be simply poisonous. Sullivan inhaled any amount of it, hence his condition. The same suggestion of loneliness and stagnation hung about the house as they passed through the hall and entered the library. They halted at the door and looked in. The amount of greenish dust in the room was extraordinary. It lay in little drifts and mounds over the floor, but most abundantly just about the couch. Immediately above this spot, they perceived on the ceiling a long discoloured stain. Neripsy pointed to it. Do you see that? It is a blood stain, and, I give you my word, it grows larger and larger every year. He finished the sentence in a low voice and shuddered. Ah, so I should have expected, observed Flaxman Lowe, who was looking at the stained ceiling with much interest.
That, of course, explains everything. Lo, tell me what you mean. A bloodstain that grows year by year explains everything? Neripsy broke off and pointed to the couch. Look there, a cat's been walking over that sofa. Mr. Lowe put his hand on his friend's shoulder and smiled. My dear fellow, that stain on the ceiling is simply a patch of mould and fungi. Now, come in carefully without raising the dust and let us examine the cat's footsteps, as you call them. Neripsy advanced to the couch and considered the marks gravely. They are not the footmarks of any animal. They are something much more unaccountable. They are raindrops. And why should raindrops be here in this perfectly watertight room? And, even then, only in one small part of it? You can't very well explain that, and you certainly can't have expected it. Look round and follow my points, replied Mr. Lowe. When we came to fetch Sullivan, I noticed the dust, which far exceeds the ordinary accumulation even in the most neglected places. You may also notice that it is of a greenish colour and of extreme fineness. This dust is of the same nature as the powder you find in a puffball and is composed of minute sporoloid bodies. I found that Sullivan's coat was covered with this fine dust and also about the collar and upper portions of the sleeve, I found one or two gummy drops which correspond to these raindrops, as you call them. I naturally concluded from their position that they had fallen from above. From the dust, or rather spores, which I found on Sullivan's coat, I have since cultivated no fewer than four specimens of fungi, of which three belong to known African species, but the fourth so far as I know, has never been described. But it approximates most closely one of the Phaleodae. But how about these raindrops, or whatever they are? I believe they drop from that horrible stain. They are drops from the stain, and are caused by the unnamed fungus I have just alluded to. It matures very rapidly, and absolutely decays as it matures liquefying into a sort of dark mucilage full of spores which drips down and diffuses a most repulsive odour. In time, the mucilage dries, leaving the dust of the spores. I don't know much about these things myself, replied Neripsy dubiously, but it strikes me you know more than enough. But look here, how about the light? You saw it last night yourself. It happens that the three species of African fungi possess well-known phosphorescent properties, which are manifested not only during decomposition, but also during the period of growth. The light is only visible from time to time, probably climactic and atmospheric conditions only admit of occasional efflorescence. But, objected Neripsi, Supposing it to be a case of poisoning by fungi, as you say, how is it that Sullivan, though exposed to precisely the same sources of danger as the others who have passed the night here, has escaped? He has been very ill, but his mind has already regained its balance, whereas in the three other cases the mind was wholly destroyed. Mr. Lowe looked very grave. My dear fellow, 
You are such an excitable and superstitious person that I hesitate to put your nerves to any further test. Oh, go on. I hesitate for two reasons. The one I have mentioned, and also because in my answer I must speak of curious and unpleasant things, some of which are proved facts, others only more or less well-founded assumptions. It is acknowledged that fungi exert an important influence in certain diseases, a few being directly attributable by fungi as a primary cause. It is also an historical fact that poisonous fungi have more than once been used to alter the fate of nations. From the evidence before us and the condition of Bowie's body, I conclude that the unknown fungus I have alluded to is of a singularly malignant nature and acts through the skin upon the brain with terrible rapidity, afterwards gradually interpenetrating all the tissues of the body and eventually causing death. In Sullivan's case, luckily, the falling drops only touched his clothing, not his skin. But wait here a minute, Lowe. How did these fungi come here? And how can you rid the house of them? Upon my word, it is enough to make a man go off his head to hear about it. What are you going to do now? In the first place, we will go upstairs and examine the flooring just above that patch of stained ceiling. You can't do that, I'm afraid. The room above this happens to be divided into two portions by a hollow partition between two and three feet thick, said Naripsi, the interior of which may originally have been meant for a cupboard, but I don't think it has ever been used. Then let us examine the cupboard. There must be some way of getting into it. Upon this, Naripsi led the way upstairs, but as he gained the top, he leant back and grasping Mr. Lowe by the arm, thrust him violently forward. Look, the light! Did you see the light? he said. For a second or two, it seemed as if a light, like the elusive light thrown by a rotating reflector, quivered on the four walls of the landing, then disappeared, almost before one could be certain of having seen it. Can you point out the precise spot where you saw the shining figure you told us of? asked Lowe. Naripsi pointed to a dark corner of the landing. Just there, in front of that panel, between the two doors. Now I come to think of it, I fancy there is some means of opening the upper part of that panel. The idea was to ventilate the cupboard-like space I mentioned just now. Naripsi walked across the landing and felt round the panel, till he found a small metal knob. On turning this, the upper part of the panel fell back like a shutter disclosing a narrow space of darkness beyond. Naripsi thrust his head into the opening and peered into the gloom, but immediately started back with a gasp. The Shining Man, he cried. He's there! Mr. Flaxman Low, hardly knowing what to expect, looked over his shoulder, then exerting his strength, pulled away some of the lower boarding. For within, at arm's length, stood a dimly shining figure. A tall man, with his back toward them, leaning against the left of the partition, and shrouded from head to foot in faintly luminous white mould. The figure remained quite motionless, while they stared at it in surprise. Then Mr Flaxman Lowe pulled on his glove, and, leaning forward, touched the man's head. A portion of the white mass 
came away in his fingers, the lower surface of which showed a bunch of frizzed negroid hair. Good heavens, Low, what do you make of this? asked Naripsy. It must be the body of Jake. But what is this shining stuff? Low stood under the wide skylight and examined what he held in his fingers. Fungus, he said at last. And it appears to have some property allied to the mouldy fungus which attacks the common housefly. Have you not seen them dead upon window panes, stiffly fixed upon their legs and covered with a white mould? Something of the same kind has taken place here. But what had Jake to do with the fungus? And how did he come here? All that, of course, we can only surmise, replied Mr. Lowe. There is little doubt that secrets of nature, hidden from us, are well known to various African tribes. It is possible that the Negro possessed some of these deadly spores, but how or why he made use of them are questions that can never be cleared up now. But what was he doing here? asked Naripsi. As I said before, we can only guess the answer to that question. But I should suppose that the Negro made use of this cupboard as a place where he could be free from interruption. That he here cultivated the spores is proved by the condition of his body and of the ceiling immediately below. Such an occupation is by no means free from danger, especially in an airless and enclosed space such as this. It is evident that either by design or by accident he became infected by the fungus poison, which in time covered his whole body as you now see. The subject of Obia, Laxman Lowe went on reflectively, is one to the study of which I intend to devote myself at some future period. I have indeed already made some arrangements for an expedition in connection with the subject into the interior of Africa. And how is the horrible thing to be got rid of? Nothing short of burning the place down would be of any radical use, remarked Naripsy. Lowe, who by this time was deeply engrossed in considering the strange facts with which he had just become acquainted, answered abstractedly, I suppose not. Naripsy said no more, and the words were only recalled to Mr. Lowe's mind a day or two later, when he received by post a copy of the West Coast Advertiser, it was addressed in the handwriting of Naripsi, and the following extract was lightly scored. Connor Old House, the property of Thomas Naripsi Esquire of Connor Lodge, was, we regret to say, destroyed by a fire last night. We are sorry to add that the loss to the owner will be considerable, as no insurance policy had been affected with regard to the property.
This podcast was produced by Mr. Jim Moon with music from the Eldritch Light Orchestra. If you enjoyed this show, please consider leaving us a review or a rating so other people can find it. If you really like the show, consider buying us a coffee at coffee.com slash hypnagoria or becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash hypnagoria where subscribers can get exclusive new shows every month and access the Patreon's only podcasting vault. For more nonsense, call into our site hypnagoria.com where you can find all manner of essays and articles on the weird and the wonderful plus my other podcasts plus links to YouTube and all the usual social media gubbins This has been a great library of dreams production 